0: What we're really passionate about is about how do we disrupt an industry that has been basically done the same way for a hundred years. When things become more efficient, people are now freed up to do things quicker, faster, better, and then they can also go do things that they're actually passionate about.
1: Welcome to Non-Zero. I'm your host, Aaron Kanad, and I'm here today with my guest, Britt Espinosa. He's the co-founder of Tulu Systems. You guys take data from the real world and transform it into amazing solutions. And we're going to get into that. It's always a uh, whenever I I'd say a tagline at the beginning, it's like this broad, nebulous thing to the audience, and then it's my goal and hope that we get around to actually explaining what you do. But I think being the co-founder, you probably have a good idea of what that is, right? Oh, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Britt, welcome to the mic. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I know that the the impetus or the the, the you know incentives always to start at the beginning, but I like to do that. So can you give us a little bit of background? Because you and I were having a great discussion before this on what led to you being the co-founder of of Tulu Systems, and it's not your typical—I I don't think there's there's such thing as a typical entrepreneurial story. But your background definitely isn't one of the more common ones you you tend to run into in the the world of business leaders and entrepreneurs. So, um, can you give us a little bit of a background on on how you got? Where you are today?
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, kind of like we were talking about, I toured for about ten years um, in a rock and roll band. So I was the front man, sang and played guitar and piano in it, and wrote most of the, the tunes and stuff. Uh, and then i i met my uh, I met a girl who's now my wife, and decided that you know being gone on Thanksgiving at a truck stop probably wasn't a good thing. So I started looking <laughs> for like normal
1: jobs. Is it hard to meet people as a rock star? I imagine that would be a difficult thing
0: like long-term relationships. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We meet a lot of people and I have some really long-term friends from that time, which is really amazing. But yeah, any like permanent connection is kind of difficult because you're always on the move, right? And always gone. So, um, but yeah, met, met my wife and, uh, and we, I, was, I decided I want to get married to her. I was on a three month tour and 10 days in, I flew home to see her. We'd only been dating like two months. But I was like, Ooh, this is, uh, this is definitely someone that I want to spend the rest of my life with. So.
1: Are you are you one for romantic gestures or I mean obviously she was and is just that special that you say hey I don't want to you know I don't want to be on the road I want to be spending my time with this woman which I think is beautiful but is that is that straight out of your playbook or was that an uh, uh an out uh, there kind of thing for you maybe. to do Maybe
0: I don't know I sh- I've only I had only dated one other person before I met her met, so it I don't know I, I've only ever really known romantic <laughs> life with her so <laughs> Um, that's that's an awesome thing at least in my life so so yeah i guess you'd say so right cuz it's the only relationship i really have any basis on
1: <laughs> yeah so you come home you'd been touring for 10 years you've been playing music what do you wh- what's your initial thought how did you think you were going to then transition to being somebody who could stay in place and and Make money, pretend- I mean, obviously, that's that's all our goal. Yeah, right? that's
0: what. Yeah, I, you're talking about not making twenty five cents a day uh, <laughs> on the road. Um, yeah, so I I was actually during that tour, I was flying home um, to do interviews a- after I came back, and I was really looking for someone that could be really uh, flexible, like because I still wanted to play music, but I just didn't want to like tour all the time. And in the band, like I had done all of the booking and all of the road management and like radio sales and all that stuff. So I had a really big background in like just business development and learning how to like grow something and create a network. And so I thought that, you know, marketing or sales would be a natural fit. So yeah, I interviewed a bunch of, I thought I was going to go into like tech. And so I interviewed a bunch of like software companies, got a few offers. And then my last interview was at this mechanical company, which was like literally like this small little warehouse off the beaten path blue collar, kind of like unassuming, and uh, went in there, met this guy named Ron Blaser, who is the the director of business development there. And just really, really interesting guy, had a really huge vision for what was going to happen with that company, and actually wanted to kind of marry tech with uh, kind of this more blue collar, labor-focused industry. And uh, so I was like, oh, this is really cool and interesting, and he's an interesting guy. And then to cap it off, he says like, hey, as long as you you know sell X amount of dollars every year, you can kind of go do whatever the heck you want. Uh, And that sounded great to me because I I still (laughs) wanted to get paid, but uh, I also wanted to have the freedom to go play music. So, I mean, that fall, we didn't do like three or four months of touring, but uh, in three months, we probably did about 30 shows. And so I was still able to like work and play music, which is really fun. And yeah, so talked with Ron, hung out with him. And then as we kind of kept developing stuff and working at that company, um, we eventually started realizing, okay, like, I, I don't know how much your audience knows about like buildings or building management, but all of the air systems that supply the air and clean it and heat it um, in a commercial building in our offices and stuff are really, really expensive. They're actually probably the most expensive operating cost of a physical building. A building owner will probably spend about $1.50 to $2 per year per square foot to mm-hmm. maintain that stuff. So, I mean, if you've got like a 100,000 square foot building, that's a quarter of a million dollars a year that you're going to spend on it just to maintain stuff. The majority of this cost is made up of labor. So you've got skilled technicians that drive to the, the site, they climb up on the roof, open up the machines, and they're just doing routine diagnostic measurements. And they're hoping that they can catch something that's an issue in that small time frame that they're up there and then mm-hmm. predict that failure and fix it before it becomes an issue. So Ron and I kind of bounced some ideas off each other. And we said, hey, let's. Uh, what if we could eliminate that diagnostic time? What if we could put our own system on this equipment And, uh, instead of having technicians monitor stuff, we can monitor it 24 seven and then tell them exactly what they need to fix the technicians. You know, there's a real labor shortage for blue collar workers in that sector right now. Um, they'd have more time to spend with their families, more time to actually, you know, most of those guys can't work 40 hours a week. They they work way more because there's such a labor shortage. Mm -hmm. Um, so they have more time and they're less stressed out and the companies are more efficient. Building owners save more money. Equipment operates, operates more efficiently. And everyone wins. And so that was in 2018 when we kind of had that initial discussion. Uh, and then in 2019, we met our our now CTO, kind of got a back of the napkin thing going and quit my job and uh, went full time at Tulu Systems. So it's kind of like the four there's, minute overview.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's brilliant. But there, there's so much here that I want to unpack. Um, and there's a theme that I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that I'd love to discuss. When you were with the band, I mean, it sounds like you still play music, but when you were touring for those 10 years... You, were, you weren't just operating. Most people think about being a musician and a touring musician as you're going from town to town and you're playing shows. Most people don't recognize how much... I We discussed beforehand, my, my little brother is actually in that space too, and he's told me a bit about how much goes into just any individual show, but what it takes to book a nationwide tour, what it takes from a logistics standpoint to get travel scheduled and to get everything at the venues set up and to get merchandise correct and all of that. It sounds like you had a big hand in that and we're we're operating in a management capacity almost for the band beyond just being a musician playing music yeah was any of that was that all self taught or did you did you go to school and and learn did you have a mentor who taught you here's here's what you do in these settings
0: yeah, yeah. so it it sort of self taught Uh, But I think it was kind of nurtured by my parents. And we discussed this a little bit, but I was homeschooled. And part of that was my my parents are very entrepreneurial. I mean, they from a very early age, I remember my dad would uh, teach me how to like flip houses and stuff. And my dad grew up uh, pretty poor, like he's from the Philippines, Uh, was able to migrate over here, which was awesome. Um, But yeah, very like strong work ethic, really kind of scrappy and entrepreneurial. Um, And so yeah, he kind of taught me all that stuff. And then kind of, it's like, uh, someone talked about, it's like, if you, if you're thinking about something all the time, you'll see those things a lot. So like, if you're thinking about like a red Lexus, like you're going to see a red Lexus everywhere you go. Right. Mm -hmm. So my parents really taught me to like, look for opportunity and look for ways to like grow whatever I'm involved in. And so, uh, like with music, you know, the first time I had to send out a check to a manager, you know, which was like 60% of what we made that night. I was like, Ooh, like I could have done everything he did and I would still have that money in our pocket. You know, we could go use it to record a new CD or whatever. Yeah, so that was kind of the opportunity. I thought, like, okay, like if I've learned how to do this, then then we don't have to do that anymore.
1: But <laughs> well, it's, it's those kinds of aha moments that drive innovation and drive entrepreneurship. You also mentioned you you lived in a town of seven hundred, but you've br- you know you've got a very broad perspective having traveled. And you know, we're living in a digital age where we're we're so interconnected. Do you notice a difference in just? how you think relative to a lot of your friends or people you come across who were educated in a more traditional manner? Do you think that's something that's unique that your parents instilled in you and that people who have a more traditional education, you can definitely learn it. Some people just come across it on their own. But do you get the sense that most traditional schooling and public schooling, at least here in the States that we can discuss, gives you a different skill set, doesn't cause you to think that way?
0: Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, if you look at when the Department of Education was instituted, over you know, it, you kind of have standardization, right? Across the board with everything. And when you have standardization, people that don't fit within that that standard set of rules or whatever or ways that you're going to teach people are going to fall through the cracks, right? And so I, I have a lot of friends who are teachers in the public school system and great, really good people. Um, but even they say, it's like, well, yeah, like you can't you can't customize one-to-one, right? And then right. it's hard to make exceptions outside of that. And so like maybe the public school system works really amazing for 40%. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know what the percentage is, but that's still, that's amazing. It's important. It's really good that it works for 40%, but there's still 60% of people that it's not optimal for. And I think I fell within that that group, whatever percentage it is, that it wouldn't be optimal for. My parents knew that. Or maybe, so this I don't was know. a
1: conscious decision because they saw personal characteristic traits and they thought that you would flourish much much better with that one-on-one attention that only they would be able to give you. Versus putting you in a public school
0: potentially, and I think it was some of their overall parenting philosophy i'm and I, I know like i'm I'm very fortunate that w- my parents were able to to put me through homeschooling. And we did some other stuff i mean there in, in our small town, there were some like co-ops like so groups of parents that would take turns teaching you out through the week or whatever and so yeah I, I realized not everyone can do that um but for me, it was a really really great thing, and I think it really really nurtured like innovation and entrepreneurship in me and my 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 younger brothers so.
1: So to come back to your current venture, I did you you did address one other thing I wanted to ask about was which was did you have any sort of background in real estate because it sounds like you went from music music and and touring as a musician and managing a band to having ideas about how to shake up the commercial real estate industry okay. and that that alone is is you know a really enterprising and ambitious thing to do does Flipping homes, and I, I imagine when you when you say that, that's usually meant uh, personal and, and residential homes. Did that translate at all to the commercial space? I know there's a, a huge gap between or difference between the two, and in, in the way that they operate. But do you feel do you feel like you had a foundation, or was it just the education that you had, the way you understood how to learn and and be creative that mm-hmm. really allowed you to almost? It, it sounds like immediate. But what's the time frame we're looking at between? going to work for with Ron Blaser and then being partners or or having this idea to start a business. Yeah,
0: that was I mean he had already been thinking about this a lot which is was what drew me to the company initially, right? Okay. Um, and then as we kind of as I learned the industry and identified like wow like you know this technician that I was working with couldn't take a vacation for a year because he was just needed all the time, you know, and then and then customers looking at us and being like, "Hey, like I paid you to maintain this equipment why is it still breaking?" and the reality mm-hmm. is like we can't be on site. So just looking at like the problems that our industry had and what it cost people, both on a financial level and a personal level.
1: Was it important to you when you got into a more traditional role that you did something that you valued? I mean, it sounds like it's important that that giving these people, the, the HVACs and or whoever the, the laborers are, a piece of their life back, the ability to spend more time with their family, the ability to potentially make more money, was that one of the driving factors for you when you were looking for a job initially, or did you just happen to chance Yeah, no, that's
0: been, um, that, that's a great question. And yeah, that's like at the core of what we do. None of us care about HVAC in a lot of ways. <laughs> we, we, it's uh, so
1: exciting though. I yeah, mean, I know. I mean, we care about, about
0: HVAC because we're passionate about what we're building, but yeah. what we're really passionate about is about how do we disrupt an industry that has been basically done the same way for a hundred years? And what is that disruption going to bring in, in terms of benefit for the people at, at, at you know, at, at the end of it all. You know, I, I want when things become more efficient, I know there are a lot of people that are worried about automation and everything, but like when things become more efficient, people are now freed up to do things quicker, faster, better. And then they're able because they're able to do that faster, better, stronger, whatever they can also go do things that they're actually passionate about right you know and that's yeah. whether it's i want to take a vacation with my family within this year or maybe we want to explore you know 10 hours a week doing painting or whatever you know that that's a big driver for us you know we want to enable people to live amazing lives and yeah that's what i'm i'm hoping that we are have a chance to do you know if if we're successful Obviously, your know, money's a tool, right? And so like whatever we do with it, like our goal is to help people live amazing lives and we're not sure what that exactly looks like yet, you know? Like my wife and I always want to be really really generous and everything and mm-hmm. we're, we're just trying to figure that out, man. Whatever we can do to, for the better of humanity, like let's do it. So.
1: I love that. Well, so it sounds like the the outcome of your work will will have a tremendous benefit and provide value to to the the users of your service, which I want to talk about how that manifests, how how you guys actually operate. How do you bake that into the company? How does that inherent goodness, like how do you build a company, especially one that launched? I mean, we're, we're talking about launching in March of this year. You said the week that that um, uh, you're in Washington, but th- that was the week that President Trump also came out and made the announcement federally, I think it, yep. was, it was mid-March. And so the country kind of knew we were going into some sort of lockdown mode. We were in the midst of a pandemic. How do you build a company Almost based on, on some level of altruism. How do you, how do you bake that into a company, especially in a time where it's now more important than ever to make sure you're being frugally fiscal and, and really tightening up and running a lean, you know, mean ship? What, what, how did, th- did that change how you operate at all launching the business at the time that you did?
0: Yeah, it changed a lot. Of, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's. You'd be hard pressed to find a business in the U.S. that hasn't changed in some way to adapt to this. But it, what changed for us was now the the value proposition of what we're selling, which is you can do things faster, quicker, and better. Kind of changed more like, hey, like you have really important aspects of your business that you need to focus on. People are probably the most important part that you have, right? Uh, if you can reduce your op- overall operating costs on your physical plant by X amount percent, you know, 30% per year. You know, that might, if it's a small company, that might save two people, you know, that you don't have to let go and you can keep them on board until you get past this. Or you might be able to, if it's a really large company, you might be able to save like two or 300 people, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that, some of that value proposition changed because people are now thinking differently about how they need to run their business. And, you know, no one wants to le- ever let go of people, right? It's, the mo- it's so expensive to fire someone and then have to rehire someone, not even fire, but just lay off someone, right? So yeah, everyone's trying to, try to so. keep people.
1: Yeah, <laughs> everyone's trying to keep. Honestly, people. in my mind, I think the the majority of of management, the majority majority of business owners care tremendously about their employees. They do. I would I would choose, uh, and I'll go to the grave with that uh, being naive if it's not the case, because that's the world I, I wish and choose to live with. But I really do believe that's the case. Who you said? You know, companies small and large. Who's on the other end when you're talking to businesses? Are we talking? You know, I grew up in in Orange County in Irvine, and that's one of the huge names I can think of in property ownership and management. I don't know if they—that's even the case, but would would the Irvine company be a potential customer of yours as a super familiar? Owner? With them.
0: Yeah, um, but companies like CBRE, CBRE, or, sure. Uh, there, there's some really large hotel companies that we're talking to, and but then it's 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 not only that, but it's also just like you know a, a, a one off company that you know, five years ago spent $20 million and bought their own office building, right? Right. And they spend $100,000 a year to maintain their HVAC equipment. And uh, ho- however we can eliminate that, you know, that it, it all helps them right now, right? When they're barely scraping by, every dollar saved is a dollar that they can use somewhere else that that keeps them alive. So yeah, that's kind of our general market. I mean, right now, one of the things we've done, which is kind of cool, is we've partnered with the actual service providers that provide the labor to fix this equipment. Mm -hmm. So there are a few companies in in Washington that are really, really forward thinking. And initially we thought, hey, you know, they're going to be threatened by us. Like, even though our intention is to make it so that everyone's life is better, they're still going to be threatened because there's like, well, hours are going away or you're automating my job. But uh, a lot of some of these companies, I was surprised to realize like, wow, they're they're actually thinking like, how can we make our employees' lives better? Kind of like you were saying, like, I think most managers do want everyone's life to be better. Um, And then they're also realizing if they don't keep up with, you know, the, the way technology is adapting. I mean, big data is everywhere, right? Like, even whatever of statistics are being taken on this podcast that we're doing, like it's being fed into some machine and they're kicking out insights, right? But commercial yeah. real estate doesn't have a lot of that yet. And uh, so I think they realized that and it's been exciting to partner with them on it.
1: Is the big data on the back end once you implement the system, you can have all sorts of data on how this is saving energy, this is saving company costs, and then that can spread and you can actually build more efficient systems as the data comes in, almost like lighting that would go on as you walk down a hallway and then go off once, once, once you're no longer there. It's creating the most efficient HVAC system possible.
0: Yeah. So 60% of the energy that a commercial building uses is used by the heating and cooling equipment, the HVAC systems. So that's a pretty big number. And it's even larger when you consider that somewhere between 30 to 50% of the entire energy that a building uses is actually due to waste, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something's not working right. You can prevent it if you just know where to look. And so with like HVAC equipment, what's really cool is these systems are built really they're really well-built, um, but they need to be managed. And if you don't know that something's going wrong in them, like an inefficiency will cascade out, right? And so one of the things, this is pretty kind of going more in-depth nerdy HVAC, but like we monitor uh, whether, you know, a, there's efficient, uh, excessive or deficient economizing. So how much outside air is being pulled into the building. Hmm. And just that alone, like if you're measuring that and you, and you can make sure that the set points are right, like you can reduce the, the energy usage by that individual piece of equipment 15 to 20% per year, uh, which is really significant right if 60 percent so I mean you know the, the weighted average like five percent or whatever it is just by having knowing that you need to adjust sup, adjust set points on a piece of equipment so yeah there's some really cool stuff we can do with that I mean we monitor at my own house you know we've got uh, some of our stuff deployed and with a push of a button I can see you know right now I can see how much energy my laptop is using in our house and how much it costs me and how many kilowatt hours it's used and So knowing is a lot of the battle, right? If you don't know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, Is that
1: something that's going to be important for the businesses or the building owners themselves? Are they going to have A, access to it? And B, would it even matter? And and, and they're going to make sense? Or are you guys automating all of that on the back end? Meaning, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to make you more efficient right right from the get-go. And then as we gather and collect data over time, we'll continue to optimize. And so you will continue to see savings you don't have to do anything on your end. Is that part of the promise, or do these companies want the data themselves? And if so, what are they doing?
0: Yeah. So most of these buildings that we work in actually have a dedicated person or team that manage okay. the actual facility. Um, they manage just the facility, and they also manage the vendors that come in. And so you know, one of the, we have a really large museum um, here that we're on for just the energy side of it, and you know, every year they're spending about one point five million dollars on just demand charges for energy. So a demand charge is when everything comes on all at once and you demand a bunch of energy from the power company, they're going to charge you per kilowatt that you demand from them. So it's really simple to like reduce that cost by just making sure that everything kind of turns on at a scheduled pace, right? But if you don't know what's turning on and when, there's no way to adjust that, right? And so if you're spending $1.5 million a year on that, that's a pretty big problem to solve. The best We are not the best people to solve that. We can give you the information that shows you exactly what turned on when and how much it demanded, uh, but mm-hmm. the guy that's actually on site, um, so in long, in short, we make that data available to those guys on site. We, we package it into nice charts, into alerts and faults and everything, but they're the ones that have to actually go execute the actions that that make these yeah. things happen. And they're the But best you are really operating in,
1: in the IoT space, the Internet of Things, right? So it's the, all these devices, What's to stop? Couldn't it be automated? Where it's, it's not an individual on the other end that has to say, hey, here's how, how and when we turn things on, and then they have some sort of playbook. Couldn't it just be the devices themselves that, that know when to turn on? And if so, is, is that something that you guys have, have planned for the future to develop a system of Physical hardware, or would you have an API where you would, you know, you, somebody could loop that data in and then manage their own system? What do you see as the future? Because this is really, I don't know if you would call this version 1.0 or 2.0. We talked about back of the napkin. We're a little past back of the napkin now. You're a bona fide company taking on cl- customers. But wh- what do you see as this progresses? Is Is there a line where you don't cross saying, no, we're not a hardware company. We're not a,
0: we are a hardware company, actually. Oh, you yeah. are a hardware. Yeah, but we, I, we build I was hardware wrong no, but you, right off the get go. No, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of control, command and control is what you're kind of talking about. Yes, we do have plans for that. I mean, it's kind of a ways out. Right now, no one there, there's a lot of companies that do command and control, but they're insanely expensive, and so it makes basically any sort of these solutions really inaccessible to the average guy. Mm-hmm. You know, in uh, 80% of the buildings in the United States are under 100,000 square feet. Uh, in the commercial real estate space, and so most of those guys aren't going to have you know two million dollars to dump on a control system that's going to save them twenty grand a year or whatever, right? So, yeah, we kind of fill that 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 aspect of the market uh, where we get full visibility, and that is part of the plan in the future. But right now, we're just trying to give really good visibility so that you know humans at the end of the day are still going to be the best people to make decisions because they know all the little intricacies, right? They know that like. Mm-hmm. You know, the the secretary leaves her heater plugged in, you know, at, at the office space. And like, that's why, right? A, a robot might not know that necessarily right off the top. They just know that like, boom, you know, circuit one demanded 50 kilowatts of energy at 8 a.m. And we need to shut that off, right? But maybe you don't want to shut that off. I don't know. But yeah, humans are the best at the end of the day still. I mean, that might be in the future change, but uh, we're just trying to provide the best information, right information at the right time to make the best decisions is our tagline.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, so this is going to help save energy, obviously, and and save money. Does it also affect the lifetime that, uh, uh, um, of the units themselves? I mean, HVAC—we're we're talking about big, big equipment. So I imagine replacing it is expensive and difficult as hell, too. Yep. If if people implement, you know, these cost-saving measures, are they also extending the lifetime of the equipment, and therefore, I mean, I imagine that's bigger savings on the back end.
0: Yeah, there, that's the that's probably the biggest portion of savings, right? So we probably save thirty to sixty cents per square foot per year for energy, but we'll save probably about maybe double that in maintenance and repair costs per year for uh, a building owner. So for, for example, like a rooftop unit has this thing called a compressor in it. It just makes the refrigerant, you know, into a gas or into a liquid um, to make so it can cool everything down. If that thing goes out. Uh, it's really, really expensive, right? And the only mm-hmm. way you can make sure it doesn't go out is if you're monitoring it 24-7. So I, I have a buddy who manages a bunch of residential properties, uh, have one of these things go out, cost him 35 grand, uh, and he had to shut down the street in front of his apartment complex to to get it replaced because they had to lift a crane and lift it up onto the roof. So I mean, with our stuff on that, that's a preventable failure, right? And it's like a preventable failure in that like, refrigerants leaking. If you can detect refrigerants leaking, you can save a $30,000 compressor with a $500 repair. And, uh, yeah, so that's probably the biggest way that we can help save building owners money financially. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the the energy stuff, every little bit counts, right. For helping everything going on. But, um, but yeah, that immediate payoff is right there. We, we guarantee a payback of under two years on our stuff. I, and almost every one of our customers has been under a year. So far. And we've, I mean, we've only been going since March, right? So yeah. six months basically it, <laughs> has been the payback period.
1: That's tremendous. It sounds like a very similar story you hear for things, you know, for like solar panels, although this seems to be the, the payback is much quicker if we're talking about two years. We're, to, as we speak, there's fires raging, and, and you're, you're, where you sit is, is one of the smokiest places in the country, in the world, That just, just north of Seattle, Washington. I think. Five cities on the West Coast bumped every single city in China off of the worst air to breathe currently, you know, as these fires go. And a lot of this is probably due to environmental reasons. I Meaning, th- these things we can expect to potentially happen more and more often if we don't do something. There are, I know in, in California and plenty of other places, there are a lot of government incentives and programs to to try to get widespread adoption of solar. Maybe it's not nearly enough. Do you see anything in your space? If if, if really sixty percent is waste, if you're extending the lifetime of these, what I'm trying to get at is is there a political um, will to to make laws that would make it much more likely that that services like yours would be, if not mandatory, would would be much more desirable? Meaning from the form of tax credits, things like that.
0: Yeah. So we've talked with some of the municipalities here about what we're doing and. Government moves really slow, right? That's the that's kind of the issue with anything managed by that, right? And so, in terms of like making anything mandatory, writing into code, we're maybe may, at the quickest maybe two years out, right? Uh, one of the code guys literally told me he's like, "You're just kind of ahead of us right now." Um, like we're we're evaluating stuff that was two years, three years behind what you are at right now. Um, and so, as they kind of catch up, then it'll be great. And so, my our philosophy is like, okay, well, let's make it so. You know, at the end of the day, being able to reduce energy in your buildings, it's not only good for the environment. It's also good for the company's bottom line, right? Those go hand in hand, which is amazing. That's a really cool thing. And so being able to demonstrate that to a company, I think is the way we're going to get adoption the quickest, right? You know, the city of Seattle rolled out a tune-up program uh, last year. And it was kind of unfortunate. I mean, it's kind of like I was talking about public school, right? Like you've kind of standardized things. And so 40% or whatever percentage are going to have really good results and then some people are going to get left out. And so they rolled out this tune-up program and it was really good because it made sure that some buildings that have done a bad job keeping their their building up to par in terms of energy efficiency were going to be updated. Hmm. But it penalized a lot of these buildings and building owners that have been doing extra and above and beyond um, to keep their buildings up to par. And so I went to a meeting for it and it was unfortunate you know, because these, these city people that were really excited about this program were uh, kind of getting kind of getting uh, chewed out by some of these building owners that that had been doing a lot of extra and above and beyond because they felt they were kind of getting the short end of the stick. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think innovation is adopted quickest when it's government just can't keep up with innovation in a lot of ways. And that's an unfortunate rule of just any sort of government. It doesn't matter if it's the U.S. or Norway or wherever. And so getting our getting our equipment adopted because it makes the most sense financially and personally to a company is the way we're going to help, uh, it's going to be our part of how we fix the climate
1: crisis. So, I love it. What about new construction then? Is this something that makes perfect sense when you're doing a new build to just bake it into the the cost, and then you will have those savings going forward? Just like you see lots of new build, builds with solar panels already on.
0: Yeah. So there's um there's this company out here called SLI uh, Sustainable Living Innovations, um, and they actually work with one of our mechanical partners, and we're kind of going back and forth about how we could could work with them. Um, we don't have anything officially with them, but they, it's just a really cool thing for your audience to check out because they basically build like modular buildings. So something about construction that's kind of interesting is there's no standardized way construction is done. Like There right. kind of is, but every building is a unique, like it's as unique as a snowflake. It's different every single time. And so this company, SLI, and this other company called UMC, uh, they're basically building these modular buildings that it's going to be the same everywhere in the country. So you, you roll in these things, they're prefabricated, you set them down, you just hook them up. Um, and there's a lot of analytics and IoT devices in these buildings. And so uh, we'd really like to be in that space, whether it's SLI or anyone else, um, because we think we have a lot of value to add in terms of the information about the, the actual building. And so, yeah, we, we're we exploring that. We don't have any new construction yet, but uh, I'm really hoping we can get involved with that someday.
1: Do you get a sense for why Prefab isn't further along? It, it blows my mind that if if you could build something in a factory and ship it, and I'm, I'm sure you could make it just as, um, you know, earthquake resistant or whatever it is that that really differentiates prefab. I think some of it comes down to the foundation and some prefab homes aren't, you know, actually anchored into the ground. But why aren't, why don't we see a mass movement or wh- why haven't we already seen a mass movement toward the production of homes in more of a factory setting or, or not just homes, commercial building, any sort of real estate to then be you know, shipped or delivered, almost like you would have Amazon hubs. You could have like production hubs in each different region and then you could just feed the the general population.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really great question, Aaron. Um, there, there's two reasons for it. And there's, I mean, there's many, but there's two that come to mind specifically. So one is building a building here in Seattle is different than building one in Texas, right? So there's all sorts of variables that are out there that you need to account for when you're like standardizing how you're going to do something. Um, so that's really, can can you just,
1: I'm I'm struggling with that concept. Is it soil? Is it the weather that you have to deal with? Is it the natural events that the, the building might be exposed to over the lifetime of, of,
0: yeah. So, so like the, uh, HVAC equipment that's built up here or built for Washington, uh, because Mm -hmm. of, you know, up here, like on a good day, it's like 60 degrees and kind of cloudy, um, and maybe like 30% humidity. Whereas if you're in Arizona, it's way different, right? It's going to be 120 right. degrees potentially on the roof. So the machines have to operate differently, right? And so you've got to figure out how you account for that. If they operate differently, that changes how large you have to make the duct work. It changes all sorts of different things. Um, so figuring out how you can account for that so it works in all applications is really, really difficult. And kind of piggybacking on that with the second reason is to prefab stuff and to build that out, it's very, very expensive to invest in it, right? You've got to like, mm. you, the first person to figure something out usually bears most of the cost, Right. And in the construction world, margins are incredibly thin. It's very, very competitive. And so to to take a risk, you know, where you're going to invest a million dollars or $2 million in a prefab facility, and if it fails and it doesn't generate money in the next two years, like you could actually lose a whole company over that. And so these people are really good at what they do in terms of building buildings. And so...
1: When you're saying these people are really good, we're, are we talking about SLIs? Well,
0: I'm just talking about in general, like uh, okay. any, any sort of contractor is really good at building buildings. Um, they just they, but they don't want to like take the risk, right. Of how mm-hmm. do we prefab, how do we, you know, invest in this type of infrastructure? Cause one bad job, you could be out, right. You could, you could lose a $200 million company overnight. Um, and so that's, uh, that's why it's really cool. I mean, UMC is a really, really innovative company and then SLI, you know, their partner, um, really, really innovative. And so I, I think they're st- there, I think they've got seven buildings that they're starting around the country here. Um, you can go look at their site or whatever, but uh they're all modular man it's really really neat so I'm I'm excited to see where it goes with that they're cheaper too because of that so
1: it's neat. Yeah I'm I'm fascinated by the space I have a personal interest I'm I'm building an ADU which is like a granny flat and in an investment property and um that was something I looked into and it just didn't seem to make sense even though I th- in my mind it it should have uh, at least I that that's what got me initially interested in doing some research. I think we've just got a couple moments left and you've got to get back to your day. So where can people find out about you? Where can people go to learn about what you guys are doing and, and potentially engage in your services? And are you right now, are you operating in the US? Meaning, can, can somebody in Florida get in touch and, and actually utilize you? Or are you rolling out region by region and, and slowly looking at world domination.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. World domination. You can find us at TuluSystems.com. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter.
1: T-U-L-U Systems.com.
0: Yep. That's correct. T-U-L-U, like Hulu, but with a T. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, we're mainly in Washington right now. Goal is in 2021, we'll be expanding into Idaho and Oregon and California. But we can ship our stuff and teach people how to install it. So if if you're in Florida or, you know, if you're in Maryland or wherever, we'd love to still talk because we'll figure it out, right? We, we want to see this stuff adopted and kind of get feedback from different parts of the country. So
1: Well, I love it. I love everything you guys are doing. Hopefully we can have you back on. We'll put all of that stuff in the show notes with links to your... Um, your site and so hopefully people will go in and check you out and learn more uh brit really appreciate having you on the mic like i said hopefully we'll we'll be able to continue this conversation because i think there's a lot more here to be had
0: yeah man that sounds great thanks for having me
1: cheers you too cool